Good morning, Gateway Church. Good morning. It is good to see everybody this morning. When we pulled into the parking lot this morning, I counted three cars. So I'm glad to see that either you all fit into those cars or you came afterwards. So it's wonderful to see everybody here today. My name is John Molella. I won't ask you to spell that. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Community Church, and I have a message this morning that I'm aching to bring. And I have an outrageous hope this morning. I think it's outrageous. My hope this morning is that God is going to continue what he already started. I don't know if you caught some of the themes in the music already today. God wants to break chains. God is in the business of breaking chains. God is a freedom-giving God. And I think he's already started that this morning. And I have an outrageous hope, an outrageous hope, that he's going to continue that as we speak. And he's going to use <laughs> the weakest things in the world. He's going to use words for his purposes today. Now, those of you that have been here the last few weeks, you know that Pastor Ed has been preaching some great sermons on holiness. He's talked about how one way the Bible defines holiness is it's being set apart from God. I love how he talked about the relief of holiness, right? Because holiness has a stereotype. When we hear the word holy, usually good things don't associate with that. We think of being rigid, don't we? We think of things that we can't do because we're holy, and I love how Ed just blew that stereotype apart because what he talked about was holiness is actually a relief. Holiness is, oh, I don't have to chase after those things that don't give me life. I can actually get off of the hamster wheel of the I wish list. If only I were smarter, if only I were skinnier, if only I were more buff, if only I were richer, if only, if only, and holiness oh, is a relief from that. We don't have to chase that anymore. Holiness is the only way to life, abundant life. And as I thought about this concept of holiness, I wondered, is there a character in the Bible that shows us what holiness is and what it isn't? Now, the Bible, you know that that's what we do here on Sunday. This is a church. <laughs> We meet here and we crack open the Bible every week because we believe that it is a unique book. We believe that out of all the books written in history, that that book is the only one that is God-breathed. That that is the only book in existence that tells me things that I desperately need to hear. And it also tells me things that maybe sometimes I don't want to hear. So is there a person in the Bible that shows us how to do this and how not to do it? Is there a person in this book that shows us what holiness is and also shows us what it isn't? I'm sure many characters may come to mind, but one that came to me as I thought about this is an outstanding character in the Bible, none other than Samson. Let me set up some context for our friend Samson. Samson lived in the time of the judges. So let's go back a bit. You know that Moses 
led the Israelites out of Egypt. Joshua actually led them into the promised land. And they wandered a bit between that because, um, well, Moses was a man and didn't want to ask for directions. So that two-week trip turned into 40 years. Not exactly. What happened is God's people, unfortunately, had a slave mentality. And it took them 40 years to purge that and get rid of it. So they're in the promised land, on the cusp of it, and Joshua is given a mandate by God, go in and displace the people that already live there. Basically, he is told, go in and wipe them out. That is cold-blooded, isn't that? Go in and wipe them out? That sounds cold, God. Go in and wipe them out. And it even smacks of genocide, doesn't it? Why, God? Why would you want your people to go in and displace these other people and basically wipe them out? It grates against my 21st century sensibilities and sense of justice. Well, I don't have all the answers, but I want to bring it up because we have to think of a few things. It was never about race, and it was never about ethnicity. It was always about worship. Those people worshipped other gods. And what is worship? You worship whatever you hold to be of ultimate value. Atheists worship. Can we, can we all agree on that? Everybody has something of ultimate value that they hold, whether it's family, whether it's money, whether it's career. You worship something. You can't help it. It's built into you. Worship is what you hold to be of ultimate value. And when the people of God mix and marry and bond with those who worship other gods, they lose their appetite for the true God. So that's one reason why they needed to be displaced. And also, listen to what one of the, the contemporaries, the Canaanite kings, who actually was defeated by Joshua. Listen to what he says. Judges 1.7, it says, Then Adoni Bezek, that's the name of that king, the Canaanite king, he said, Seventy kings, with their thumbs and big toes cut off, because I cut them off, have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So it's food for thought. Was it so unjust to push them out? This king says, no, we got what we deserved. So we're in this context now. God's people are now in the land, and they're in conflict with the natives there. And it's mostly this group of people called the Philistines. And there's a leadership deficiency. The deficiency now is Joshua is gone. Now the priesthood, the spiritual leadership of the people in the book of Judges during this time is silent, strangely silent, and we don't know why. And when they do show up, they are ineffective and corrupt. And there's a refrain throughout the book. Well, let me back up. The book of Judges has enough sex and violence in it to make Game of Thrones look like Sesame Street. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to read that book. It is raw. It is grotesque, even, in some cases. And it's real stuff. And there's a refrain throughout the book. There's a phrase that's repeated several times that makes me think that, you know what? This book could have been written about America in the 21st century because the refrain goes like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And don't we find ourselves in that context in a country of 350 million supreme beings. 
So there's an ebb and flow to this book. God raises leaders up, or, or they call them judges, to lead the people. And the people come back to God, and they come back to the worship of the true God, and then they fall away, and they're defeated by their enemies, and God raises up another leader. And you're, you're familiar, if you, if you know the Bible, you're probably familiar with some of the names, Deborah, Gideon. And the last leader in the book of Judges is Samson. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read through the story of Samson. And I'm going to make three points while I read. They all begin with a P, so they're easy to remember. And then at the end, we're going to have about four things we're going to talk about to take away. So we're going to dive into the book of Judges, and we're going to start in chapter 13. And let's pray before we start reading. So Lord, I know you're already doing stuff here, Lord. And I know that a lot of times we naturally resist you. So, Lord, today I pray that you'd break through our defenses that we have put up. And, God, that we would hear everything that you want to tell us today. We would take it to heart. And, Lord, for me, I pray you'd forgive my sin and my weaknesses and and everything I bring to you, God. I pray that that wouldn't get in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of Judges, chapter 13. I'm going to start reading for us in verse 1. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. We talked about that ebb and flow. The Israelites are are at a low point here. Verse 2, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You're barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb, He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is an unusual birth. Okay, raise your hand. How many of you had your births announced by an angel? In the Bible, this is really rare. When I thought of this, I only thought of maybe four people. See, we had Isaac, born to Abraham and Sarah, Samson, here, John the Baptist, and Jesus. So we realize we're in some select company as we start. Pick it up in verse 6. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. What's a Nazarite? So Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, tells us that if God's people want to intensify for a temporary period their relationship with God, if they want to seek God with additional intensity, they can take what's known as a vow, the Nazarite vow. And it has three parts to it. One is no haircuts. Okay, You let your hair grow. That's number one. Number two is no wine. 
nothing made with grapes, okay? No Chardonnay, no Merlot, no Welches. And the third thing is, don't touch anything dead. Don't touch anything dead. So unfortunately, somebody dies, okay? Hands off, okay? Don't touch roadkill. <laughs> don't touch corpses. Don't touch anything dead. Just the three things. And this was a voluntary vow that somebody would take, basically to tell God, I'm in business. You and I, we have business to do, and I'm going to intensify this. Again, Nazarites, there are only three lifelong Nazarites in the Bible. So we have Samson, we have Samuel, and John the Baptist. We have a very select group of people. Manoah prayed to the Lord. I'm in verse 8. He says, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Now, i got to give this guy credit. If an angel came to me and said, you know, you're going to have a really special kid, I would hope that I'm going to pray and say, how do I raise this kid? I mean, I'm doing that now with my kids. How do I raise these kids? I have no idea. How do I do this? So Manoah, he's doing what's right. Okay, we're going to need help with this kid, Lord. Help. So God heard Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman, to his wife, while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I've told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink any wine or other fermented drink or eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. So, <laughs> interesting. Do you get this? The angel is saying, I already told your wife. She already told you. Listen to your wife, dude. She knows what to do here. She knows what to do. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. He wants to have a meal, you know, with this. Hospitality, it's the Middle East. You've got to do that. Hey, let's have a meal. You know, you, you eat my food. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize it was the angel of the Lord. This guy's a little bit slow on the uptake. That's just the way it is. When Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? Interesting question. What's your name? What is your name? The angel replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Some translations say it is wonderful. Now commentators are mm, somewhat divided on this, but I wonder if Manoah is talking to the one who has the name above all names. I wonder this, but we don't know for sure. All we know is, no, this name is beyond understanding. Manoah, don't, don't even try to understand my name. Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord and the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, 
The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. That's a very appropriate response. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized it was the angel of the Lord. Finally, the lights go on. Ding, 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 ding. And here's what he said. We're doomed to die. We have seen God. Right? You can't see God and live. Because God just blows your circuits. But fortunately, this guy had a practical and wise wife. And here's what she said. His wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things or now told us this. I have to say this <laughs> to my unmarried brothers. Do yourselves a favor. If you choose a wife, pick a woman that's smarter than you. I know for some of us that's not hard to do. Pick a practical woman. She gets it. If God was going to kill us, why give us all these promises? Okay, that's not going to happen. It says, the woman gave birth to the boy and named him Samson. He grew, the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. So here's what I see in this part of the story. What we're seeing here is the pick. Holiness begins with the pick. Samson was picked by God. He was chosen by him before he was born, and he carried a sign on his head, what probably looked like dreadlocks after a few years. A lifelong reminder that he had been set apart at birth. You know, we often celebrate here somebody making a decision for Christ. You know, we, we hear testimony and, and we baptize people, and we need to, that is something to celebrate. But behind that, we have to remember if you are connected to Christ, it's because God picked you. He chose you. It started with his pick. In his letter to the Ephesians in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul writes to a small group of believers, and here's what he says. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Why did he pick us to be holy and blameless in his sight? You know, I think some of you here are struggling with that. I think some of you are struggling with the pick. And here's what I mean. I think there are people here, or at least people that are listening, that God is looking to pick you. And you're fighting. You are resisting. And maybe that resistance has gone on for years. I know in my own life, I fought God for years. And really, I only came to him when he wore me down. I was tired of fighting. Maybe one of you or some of you are like that today. And I think God's message to you is stop fighting. He's picking you. Stop resisting. He is picking you. He's picking you today. So Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Okay, so Samson now, he is picked, 
and he is picked to begin the delivery of his people from these Philistines. In other words, he's picked to be the leader to deliver his people from under the oppression of the Philistines. And the first thing we see him do is he wants to marry one of them. And not only that, <laughs> he tells his parents, go get her for me. <laughs> That's not how things worked in that culture. Usually mom and dad, and probably dad, made the decision on the marrying. Samson has got things a little backwards. So his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? You have to go to the uncircumcised Phyllis. You have to go to the idol worshipers to find a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. And you know what he actually says, the Hebrews? He says, she is right in my eyes. Everyone did what was what? Right in their own eyes. She's right in my eyes, Dad. The verse goes on. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So God raises up Samson. The first thing he does is he wants to go marry an unbeliever. Here we see a, 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 the beginning of a major disconnect, and here is what the disconnect looks like. It's a conflict between Samson's appetites and Samson's identity, a conflict between his appetites and his identity. We're going to see with Samson later on, his appetite is going to win. More on that later. Now, did you catch the, the last, the, what I call a theological speed bump? Did you catch that? I hope I didn't obscure that for you. Let me read it again. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Okay, did you get that? Okay, this, the, the speed bump, the theological speed bump. This was from the Lord? Wait, wait. So is the Bible saying that God is going to use Samson's arrogant desire and his lust for his own purposes? Is that what the Bible is saying? That is what the Bible is saying. Is the Bible saying that God will use our flaws, our mistakes, and even our sins for his own purposes? That is what the Bible is saying. Let me say a couple things here. First off, as one of the brothers here said some months ago when we were talking, do you realize on this earth, we're all God has? <laughs> God is elected. And, you know, I wouldn't have done it this way if I was God, but who cares about that? I would have picked angels, right? Okay, they're hardcore. God picked humans to do his work on this planet. We're all he has. He has elected to work with what he has. We are flawed. We make mistakes. We are sinful. He has elected to work with us. We're all he has. And it reminds me of somebody I knew was a transit cop back in New York City back in the 1970s. That was really the book of Judges back then. That was crazy. And he said, there is no feeling like being on a subway platform, underground, on duty, in uniform, and you hear somebody yell, help, police! And then you realize, that's me. That's you. You're what he has to work with. You're it. The second thing I see in this is that God will use anything 
to pry his people away from idols. God will use anything to pry his people away from idols. God will use anything to divorce his people from being married to idolatry. He will use anything, and he will use this flawed, sinful man, and he will use us. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approached the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord, note that, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I don't know what it looks like to tear a young goat, but obviously this was easy. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. The power of set-apartness, the power of holiness. There are three times in this book, in the life of Samson, where we see the Spirit of the Lord come down upon him. In each circumstance, the Spirit gives him supernatural power beyond himself. And here we see the power of holiness. God sets somebody apart and then empowers them to do what normally they could not do. In this case, in this way, Samson is a prototype of the church. Can we see that? Do you remember what Jesus told his first followers? After he rose, he said, stay in Jerusalem. This is in Acts 1, verse 8. Stay in Jerusalem until what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. There is power in holiness. The power of being set apart. We see this in Samson. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, in verse 8, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and he saw a swarm of bees and honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. <laughs> okay, he's walking along. Okay, he sees the lion he had killed. Okay, uh, it's bee season. So the bees went in there, and they made a nice hive, and now there's honey in there. And Samson does, he does the Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> he grabs some honey. Seems very innocent, right? He's just hungry, making use of the resources he has. Samson, why are you touching something dead? Don't you remember you're a Nazarite? Don't you remember that that's one of the prohibitions God doesn't want you touching anything dead because God is a God of life. He doesn't want you touching dead things. So Samson makes himself unclean, and his parents too, by not telling them. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. The word rendered here as feast, you know what it really means? It means drinking party. Wait, wait, drinking party? Wait, fruit, fruit of the vine? Drinking party? I don't think they were drinking Ovaltine. Why is he drinking the fruit of the vine when he was told not to? So Samson says, let me tell you a riddle. If you give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. So he's telling this to the young men who were there. He says, if you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. He's a gambling man. Do you get this? You solve my riddle. 
Okay? I'll give you this. I solve it. You give me that. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. So he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. They have no idea what he's talking about. For three days, they could not answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or, this is cold, we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did I tell you things were rough back then? Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Well, I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. <laughs> so on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She wore him out, wore him down. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. You know, Samson is often portrayed like a big oaf of a guy, right? Interesting how the scriptures never say anything about his size. They don't say he's big. And obviously, he's clever. He is shrewd. Look how shrewd he is. He gives an unsolvable riddle to these people to get what he wants. And when he loses, he steals it from somebody else to give to them. I have to say in reading this, Samson is, to me, the stereotypical ugly American. Isn't he? He does whatever he wants. We were watching uh, TV the other night, a uh, whole show on road rage. Real phenomenon. You know, people get angry in their cars, and they, you know, now with cell phones, everything is captured on video. People get out of their cars, perfect strangers, never saw each other in their lives. Before you know it, they're at each other's throats. They're hitting each other. They're fighting. This is our man here, king of road rage. He does whatever he wants. He has not yet learned to connect his calling with his life. There's a disconnect. I'm going to skip chapter 15 in the interest of time, but let me give you a synopsis. Samson's wife is given to someone else, and Samson goes berserk. He burns down the Philistine wheat fields. The Philistines, in turn, they burn his, I guess it's his ex-wife and her father, and Samson goes terminator on the Philistines. He is just out for blood. So the men of Judah... Fellow Israelites go to Samson, and they're like, look, <laughs> we have to do something. The Philistines, we're going to give you up. We're going to offer you up to the Philistines, so they leave the rest of us alone. So they tie up Samson. They bring him to the Philistines. The ropes just melt when he, he breaks them, and he grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a 1,000 Philistines. The body count just rises 
But here's something we see here with Samson. We're reminded, unlike the other judges in this book, Samson is a solitary figure. He leads no army. He is a one-man army. He has no counselor. He has no companions. He has no one to speak into his life. And even if he did, I don't know if he would listen. Chapter 16. It says, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. Prostitute? Wait, wait. Isn't this God's hero? Isn't this God's champion? Chosen before he was born to begin the deliverance of God's people? Prostitute? How does this make any sense? How does this make any sense in our own day when we hear of the moral failure of leaders, especially leaders in the church? How does that make any sense to us? It even makes us question sometimes, doesn't it? Is this stuff real? Does it work? I think it's helpful to start to think through these things. It's helpful to distinguish between two things. The Holy Spirit's gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I mean. The Holy Spirit's gifts are those attributes, those talents, those abilities that are given to the church so that the church can function and thrive. And what I mean by that are some of the things that the Apostle Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, things like gifts of tongues and prophecy, gifts of healing, gifts of teaching, gifts of administration, gifts of leading. These are gifts. And then we have the fruit of the Spirit. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament where he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are character traits that grow over time and we are to cultivate is it possible to have one without the other? The answer is yes. It's true. Some of the most gifted people I've known have actually been a mess. So it is possible to have one without the other. But let me say this, church. What if we were a church that said we want both? What if we were a church that said, I want everything that God has for me? I want the gifts of prophecy. I want the gifts of teaching. I want the gifts of healing, of administration, of giving. I want to see those. I'm going to pursue them as we're instructed to do. And what if we also said, we want to be a people that have the fruit of the Spirit? I think if we were a church that pursued both, I think we would shake the world. Can I say amen? I think we would rock the world. I think that would be an unstoppable force, not only in this neighborhood, not only in this region. I think we would have footprint on the world. We would rock the world. Let us not have one without the other. So Samson gets away this time. Let's go to our last chapter. It says, sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up 
and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. That's big bucks. They're going to give her a lot of money. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you could be tied up and subdued. Exactly what she said. This is the last P, or one of the P's, the pitfall. We talked about how holiness begins with the pick God chooses, how holiness leads to power, and here we see more of the pitfalls on the road to holiness. We have seen a violent, self-centered Samson fight for his life against thousands of Philistines. Every single time he comes out victorious, now we're going to see something a little different. We're going to see a pitfall that has been tailor-made for his weakness. And what do pitfalls do? They rob us of strength and they subdue us. So now it's on. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, well, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. And then with men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pen. I was shocked when I read this. Samson's hair is his crown. That is the physical sign of Yahweh's blessing on his life. Samson, why are you letting her touch your hair? Why is she touching your hair, Samson? Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pen and loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Are you asking the same question I am? Say, so why are you still there? Why are you there? Maybe the first time you didn't get it. <laughs> Hopefully the second time you got it. But now we're up to number three. Why are you there, Samson? Why are you still there? Why are you even talking to her? I think one reason is that Samson just didn't see the danger. He never lost. Never lost the fight in his life. He's always been the strongest person in every encounter he's had. He's always been the strongest. He cannot see himself losing. But it goes on, it says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite 
dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Brothers and sisters, we get tired, don't we? Our lives are frantic. We get tired. Sometimes we don't understand the real context of our lives. Remember Ed talked about that last week? We have a to-do list. That's not the context of our lives. The real context of our lives is eternity. God is fitting us for eternity. But we get overwhelmed, and we get tired, and we need to lay our heads. Brothers and sisters, be careful where you lay your head. Be careful where you lay your head. Samson was not careful. The man who was victorious over thousands was taken down by this. And the Bible says his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. And here comes what I think is the most chilling sentence maybe in the entire Bible. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair in his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Samson was blind before anyone touched his eyes. He was blind. And he was in chains before anyone shackled his hands and feet. He was already in chains. Some of you have been there. You know what it's like to sense that God has left you. Some of you know what it's like to fail morally, big time. To have habits that you can't or won't stop. To have done or not done things that now you can't fix. To feel abandoned. To be in the dark. To be in chains. Some of you have been there, and if you haven't, some of you will be there. Did you notice the note of hope here? Did you see the note of hope? His hair is growing back. If that's you today, let me just say that to you. Your hair is growing back. If you have failed, if you're in the dark, let me say that to you. Your hair is growing back. The story is not finished. Greed, lust, covetousness. The only way I know to defeat those appetites is with a greater appetite. The appetite for God. And I don't think Samson had any taste for God at all until the end. I don't see any sign of a relationship with God at all. Now, how do we do this? You know what I realize about appetites? We catch our appetites from other people. We do. That's how advertising works. You know, you, you see the people with the new car, and they're loving their car, and then before you know it, you're loving the car. That's the way it works. I had the privilege of spending time with Dean, Dean Salami, the other day. And Dean, I, I, 
I don't know about you, but I walked out of there. I was pumped for God. And I know it's just maybe because it's, it's Dean, but uh, that was like a vitamin B12 shot in my spirit. That was really good. So you're all, <laughs> Dean, you're going to get a lot of phone calls this week. I'm sorry. Everyone's going to want to hang with Dean. But that's how it is. We, we, you have to be with people that have an appetite for God so you can catch that from them. And hopefully you give them your appetite for God. So you need to cultivate your appetite for God. And the third thing we have on there is kill the Beatles. Now, I'm not talking about John, Paul, Ringo, and George. <laughs> no, not those Beatles. All right, let me tell you a story. And I did clear this with Lisa to be able to say this. So um, this was about a week ago. Lisa comes, my wife, okay, who puts up with me. <laughs> Believe me, she puts up with a lot. Comes into the house. She was outside, and she says, we're killing those Beatles. Okay. So we have rose bushes on the side. Knockout roses. You ever see them? They're gorgeous. They're really nice. Okay, what likes to eat, what loves to eat roses? Japanese beetles, right? And they only take, what, little bites at a time. Our roses were devastated. You saw through all the leaves. It's like they didn't exist. So she said, we are killing those beetles. Next thing I know, we're in Lowe's, okay? And we're picking out all this poison. <laughs> I mean, it's like scary, you know, all this stuff, you know, poison and you know, I'm going to kill, you know, so we're packing bags of this stuff, you know, into the minivan, and we're going to go home and poison all these beetles so that they don't eat our roses. What are the beetles in your life? They may take really small bites, but after a while, you look at your roses and they're devastated. Did you notice with Samson? He just got worn down like a drip, wore him out. We are called to kill the beetles in our lives. You know, Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You know, we're not called to make war against people. We're called to make war against those things that pull us away from God. And there's a certain militancy that a lot of us are not comfortable with that we have to be comfortable with. Ed talked about it last week. He said, disrupting the rhythm of sin in your life. We need to kill the beetles. What are they? They're going to be different for a lot of us, but we need to war on them. And the fourth thing I want to talk about is let your hair grow. <laughs> let your hair grow. Can I ask you this? Do you have a physical sign of your apartness? Now, Ed talked about how we're baptized. Yeah, that's on us. That's wonderful how that's on us. Do you have a daily sign of your apartness? I know in New York, when we were, um, Lisa and I were originally from New York City, our pastor said that uh, at that time he was in mental health. He was training for the ministry. And he said for him it was a turning point when he started to wear a Jesus belt buckle. And he became known as the Jesus freak of mental health. That was his physical sign. What's yours? You know what I was thinking? I need to have some Bible verses on my desk at work. Some of you may need to wear a cross. What is your physical daily reminder that you are different? It may be different for each of us, but I challenge you for that. I was thinking maybe a Christian bumper sticker, but then I remember how some of you drive. <laughs> that might not be the best thing. What is a physical sign of your apartness, 
of your set-apartness. And I wondered, as I prepared for this, I wondered why this person to preach on. And I felt like this is what God wanted me to talk about this morning. Why this person? Why Samson? Out of all people in the Bible, and I thought of two things. One is, this is a church full of Samsons. It is hard for me to imagine a church full of Samsons. It's hard for me to imagine a more gifted group of people, a people that are called by God and gifted. Do you know what our sign is as a church? It's that building. That building is a gift. That building is a sign of God's calling on this body of believers. Like Samson, you are called by God and gifted. And like Samson, some of us use our gifts for ourselves and we squander them by not using them for others. And part of our holiness, our set-apartness, means that we are called to use what God has given us. And why else? Why else, Samson? Why else? Here's why I think. In his failings, Samson points us to somebody else. He points us to a, a better Samson. Every single leader that Israel had failed. Every leader in this book failed. They failed to defeat God's enemies, and they failed to set Israel apart. Gideon failed, ultimately. Samson failed, ultimately. David ultimately failed. And if you read the story of the kings of Israel and Judah, they all failed ultimately to set God's people apart and to defeat God's enemies. But there was one. There was one who was to come who would defeat God's enemies. There was one who was to come greater than Samson who was going to defeat the enemies of God and set God's people apart. The one who the angel foretold who was willingly shackled for us. Samson is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And I think this is awesome. Do you know there's a hall of fame in the Bible? There's a hall of fame. It's in Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11. Samson is in there. Samson is in there. He's in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And here's what it talks about. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, etc., etc., who through faith conquered kingdoms, and here's what I want to talk about, whose weakness was turned to strength. Samson was never stronger than at the end when he was the weakest. Our weakness leaves room for God's strength. Jesus was never more powerful than when he was hanging on the cross for our salvation. Our weakness leaves room for him. So church, I think we are challenged today. Are we going to accept the call? Are we going to accept the pick? Are we going to do it? Let's pray. Lord, some of us are, are tired of fighting you. Some of us really, we're not even in a fight. We're just living day to day. And some of us are just dulled, God. We're just dulled by life. So, Lord, we present everything that we know of ourselves to you right now. Lord, as much as we're able, we open ourselves up to you. We ask you to continue what you started in us, Lord.
what you've started today, we ask you to continue it. In Jesus' name, amen.